Wellspring podcast is presented by Wellspring of Life Church, a community of faith, hope, and purpose. Ephesians chapter 2. We'll be in the second half of that chapter. We covered the first half last week, well, two weekends ago. Last week was church camp. As most of you will remember, on Monday, April 13th, 1970, <laughs> here's, here's a better, better clue for you. The spacecraft Apollo 13. How are we doing now? Okay. <laughs> Along with its three crew members, James Lovell, John Swigert, and Fred Hayes, became disabled on their way to the moon. A supply tank of oxygen had exploded and, and left the crew with little provision and a whole lot of worry. There they were, floating in space, attempting to pilot an otherwise disabled ship. They were helpless men who needed a lot of help. Their present reality really was extremely alarming. Chances were they would either float through outer space forever or burn while falling into the Earth's atmosphere in a blazing ball of fire. There was one glimmer of hope for them, the people back at Mission Control were trying to find a way to, to keep them alive while salvaging what was left of the spacecraft. For the next several days, every effort was made to rescue the astronauts from, from this really very, very scary situation that they were in. Miraculously, as you all know, because you probably have all seen the movie <laughs> that came as a result of it, their lives were spared and they returned back to Earth safe and sound. With illustrations like this, sometimes people are sitting there and thinking, where is he going with this? <laughs> this illustration reminds us, church, of what Jesus has done for us, right? You see, we too were lost in space. Were we not? Like the astronauts who were separated from earth, we, Paul has let us know, were separated from God. And we were headed for a crash landing in a fiery place where we would be eternally separated from his presence. The crew on the Apollo 13 had a mission control that they could look to for help. The follower of Jesus Christ has something way, way better than that. Amen? We have Jesus, who is our Savior Redeemer, deliverer, and rescuer, and he happens to be the one who controls the mission. He is mission control. And he has rescued us from our lostness and separation with reconciliation and peace. And so in this second half of the of chapter 2 of Ephesians, Paul wants the reader, he wants us to grasp what God has done for us from three points of view. An historical view, and then an individual view, as well as a new creation view. 
And there are three very important words connected to these three views. And the words are separation, reconciliation, and unification. That's what we're going to be looking at this evening. So first we see that the word is separated, and that's exactly what the Gentiles were in Ephesians in the first century. Let's look at the first couple of verses of the second half, which would be verses 11 and 12, okay? It says, therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who are who call themselves the, the circumcision, that's referring to the Jewish people that done in the body by human hands. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. So the Ephesian church seems to have been in some turmoil. It seemed that there was some friction happening between the Jewish and Gentile believers. I think that explains why the discussion here that Paul goes into between the Jews and the Gentiles, between the two groups. In the first 10 verses, which we were in two weeks ago of the second chapter, Paul discussed the salvation of sinners in general, but now he turns to the work of Christ for Gentiles in particular. Most of the converts in the Ephesian church obviously were Gentiles. And they knew that much of God's work in the Old Testament involved the Jewish people, which the Jewish people made sure the Gentiles never, ever forgot. And so for centuries, the circumcision, the Jews, had looked down on the uncircumcised, the Gentiles, with an attitude that God never, ever intended for them to display. In verse 11, Paul shows the Gentiles' hopeless condition before salvation. Now, please note, not because he's trying to keep them in their place, but because he wants them to understand just how blessed they really are. Paul says to them, you were at one time without Christ, without hope, without God. You were in trouble. You had no hope for a Messiah. You had no knowledge of God. You had no eternal peace. You had no future. Paul wants the Gentiles to know God's plan of salvation in the Old Testament that, yes, did indeed come through the Jewish nation, but it always had them on his mind, just like we just sang. <laughs> they were not, in the eyes of God, some kind of second-class people. The one word that best describes the Gentiles in this section of, of chapter 2 would be the word without. They were without. They were outside in several ways. Let's look at it again. Without Christ. The Ephesians worship the goddess Diana. And before the coming of the gospel, they knew nothing about Christ. They were without citizenship. God called the Jews and built them into a nation. He gave them his laws and his blessings. A Gentile could enter the nation, but would be considered a proselyte, would always be thought of still as a foreigner. 
They were without covenants. While the blessing of the Gentiles is included in God's covenant with Abraham, that we see that in Genesis chapter 12, God did not make any original official covenants with the Gentile nation like he had with the, with the people of Israel. They were without hope, it says. Historians tell us, this is interesting, that a great cloud of hopelessness covered the ancient world. Philosophies were empty. Religions were powerless to help people face their, their, their situations, with, and especially the whole idea of life and death. People longed for some kind of message of hope. But for them, prior to Christ, they had none. And then it says they were without God. The lost Gentiles... Now, they had plenty of gods. Remember in Acts 17, Paul strolls into Athens, and there is no shortage of gods. It was said that in Athens, you'd have an easier time finding a god than you would a person. <laughs> That's a lot of gods. But the pagan, no matter how religious he or she might have been, still did not know the true living God. It's worth noting, I think, that the hopeless spiritual predicament that the Gentiles were in wasn't caused by God, but by their own willful sin. We need to understand that. Paul explained this in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 23, where in that group of scripture, in verse 21, he says, although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts became darkened. Religious history is the sad story, really, of a man and woman knowing the truth about God and deliberately turning away from it. The first 11 chapters of Genesis give the story of the decline of the Gentiles. That's really what that is about. And then when you get to chapter 12, where we find the calling of Abraham, we then see the beginning of God turning his now his attention from the Gentiles onto the nation of Israel. They would become the nation of Israel. And from Genesis 12 on, it's the story of the Jewish nation. God called them beginning with Abraham so that through them he might reveal himself as the one true God to the rest of the world, the Gentile world. He deposited his word with the Jews and through them he gave the world what? The Savior, our Redeemer. Israel was not to be a, was to be, in other words, a light to the Gentiles that they too might be saved, God's plan. But sad to say, Israel, as many of you already know, became just like the Gentiles. And if there was any light at all, it burned very, very dimly. This fact serves as a warning, I think, for us today as the New Testament church. When the church is least like the world, folks, it does the most for the world. Next, we come to the, to the word 
key word reconciliation. And this is where we see Paul write about what God did for the Gentiles. Look at verses six, uh, 13 through 16 with me. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups, one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. By setting aside in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. The but now that we find in verse 13 parallels beautifully with the but God that we saw two weeks ago in verse 4. Both speak of the amazing gracious intervention of God on behalf of lost sinners like you and me. Notice the word hostility. It refers to a twofold hostility, actually. Hostility between Jews and Gentiles, but it also includes between sinners and God. Okay? Paul is describing here, I believe, and how I've worded it, the greatest peace mission in history ever. Jesus not only reconciled, meaning brought together Jews and Gentiles, but he reconciled both to himself into one body, one humanity the NIV has. I like the term into one people group. I like that. Imagine the excitement when a Gentile heard or read verse 16. <laughs> Not only was God doing this for them, but he also had to do it for those who were already thinking that they were there. Had to have been some of the coolest stuff they'd heard yet at that point. You see, sin is the great separator in this world. Would you agree? And God's peace and his reconciliation is the great uniter. Sin has been dividing people since the beginning of human history. When Adam and Eve sinned, they were separated from God, right? They were separated from God. Before long, their sons were separated from each other. And eventually, Cain killed Abel. The earth was filled with violence. We read this in Genesis 6. And the only remedy seemed to be judgment. But even after the flood, people sinned against God and each other and even tried to build their own unity without God's help with the Tower of Babel. The result was, as you know, another judgment that scattered the nations and confused the languages. It was then that God called Abraham. And through the nation of Israel, God's son came to the world. It was his work on the cross yes. that abolished the hostility. Are you, 
Are you tracking with me? This is such great news. His work on the cross that did away with, abolished the hostility between Jew and Gentile and between us sinners and God. And once those purposes were accomplished, there was no more difference as far as God was concerned. In fact, it was God's purpose that these differences would be erased forever. And they are erased through the work of Christ's reconciliation. The cause of that hostility, as we've read here, was the law. So Jesus, through his shed blood, set aside the old law and brought in a new law known as the law of Christ. This had to happen. This had to happen because it was the law that made a definite distinction between Jews and Gentiles. I don't know if you ever thought of it or seen it like that. In that light, the divine ordinance given by God to Israel stood as a wall between the Jews and all other nations. In fact, church, there was a wall in the Jewish temple separating the court of the Gentiles from the rest of the temple areas. Archaeologists have discovered an inscription that came from Herod's temple. And it reads like this. Check this out. No foreigner may enter within the barricade which surrounds the sanctuary and enclosure. Anyone who was caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. I thought about that and I'm thinking, hmm, that might go over a little, is a little bit offensive in our day. <laughs> Can you imagine the social media on that one? The cost of destroying the hostility, as I said, was the blood of Christ. When he died, the veil in the temple was literally torn in two. Amen. And the wall of separation, figuratively, was torn down by fulfilling the demands of the law in his righteous life and by bearing the curse of the law in his sacrificial death. Jesus removed the legal barrier that separated Jew from Gentile. For centuries, there was a difference between them, but now there is none as far as God is concerned. Paul wrote in Romans, as a matter of fact, in Romans 10, verses 12 and 13, these words, For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is the Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It took the early church a long time to get accustomed to this is there is no difference thing. Unfortunately, it continues for some to be a problem today. Still trying, hear me now, still trying to get Christians back under the law in a way that completely nullifies the free gift of salvation by His grace 
When Paul says that Jesus abolished in his flesh the law, he isn't saying that we no longer are to pay attention to it or that we now can ignore the entire Old Testament and consider it no longer relevant. That is not what he is saying. He's saying what was abolished was the law's inability to provide salvation. The old system for atonement of sin had been done away with. No more needing for sacrificing animals. Which always blows me away today for those who are still saying, no, it's Torah only. I don't see them doing that, do you? I've never ever been able to figure that out. He's saying, no, it was... The, the system that was done away with because it could not provide salvation. We don't need to sacrifice animals anymore because we now have what? The supreme sacrifice, the Lamb of God. You see, I think it's great if a Gentile believer wants to enjoy the benefits that come with the Old Testament law, and they are there. There's no question to that. Such as, for example, the, the dietary instructions. That's, that's good instruction there. Or even the celebrating of the feasts of the Lord, as some of us do. Since they are all about Jesus anyway, right? <laughs> Not out of obligation in order to earn something, Certainly not in a way to obtain salvation, but as a means of celebration for the reconciliation and the sanctification and the peace that we enjoy and have in Jesus. That, would, that could have been a good place for everyone to roar, amen. <laughs> Let's look at the next couple of verses, 17 and 18 now. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Jesus, the Messiah, is our peace. It says he made peace. It even says he preached peace. As the supreme divine judge, he could have come to declare war on us. Amen? And we all know we, that is what we would have been deserving of, but he didn't. He could have, but he didn't. Instead, he came in his grace. He came with the message of peace. Jew and Gentile can now be at peace with each other in Christ. And both have open free access to the living God. The reconciliation in Jesus is complete. And notice how once again Paul levels the playing ground. Peace was preached to those who were far away and it was preached to those who were near. The Gentile, the Jew. In the remaining verses we come to the third key word being unification. This is about what Jews and Gentiles are together in Christ. Picking it up at verse 19. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. 
built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together, you Gentiles, you too being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Paul gives three pictures that illustrate the unity of believing Jews and Gentiles in the church. The first picture is this, their fellow citizens. Israel was God's chosen nation, we know this. And we also know that they rejected their Redeemer and suffered the consequences, did they not? Jesus actually said in Matthew 21, verse 43, the kingdom would be taken from them and given to a people who would produce its fruit, the fruit of the kingdom. Who are those people? The church. The people is the church, the one new people group. A chosen generation, Peter would say, a holy nation of people belonging to God. It was said in Exodus 19 and again by Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2. In Genesis 10, this is, this is amazing. This is so cool. See what our God has done. And it becomes a reminder of what he'll do for you and me. In Genesis 10, the nations were reckoned by their descent from Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And if you've forgotten who those three guys are, they are the sons of Noah, okay? In the book of Acts, now watch this. This is so cool. We see these three families united in Christ. In Acts chapter 8, a descendant of Ham is saved. Who is it? The Ethiopian treasurer. If you knew your, where these guys would all go, that's Africa, basically that area. Acts 8. In Acts chapter 9, a descendant of Shem. You know who it is? It's none other than the Saul of Tarsus, who would become the apostle Paul. And in Acts chapter 10, the descendants of Japheth, the Gentiles, in the household of the Roman soldier Cornelius. <laughs> God had not forgotten those from way back, lost in darkness and in time. And church, he will never, ever forget you. Once again, we know that sin has divided mankind, but Christ unites by his spirit. All believers, regardless of national background, belong to that one holy nation with a citizenship in heaven. Hallelujah, right? Second picture, one family, through faith in Christ, we enter into God's family, and God becomes our father. We are all brothers and sisters in the one family, no matter what 
racial, national, or physical distinctions that may exist. We're all one. And then the third picture is that it says that we're one temple. In the book of Genesis, God, it says, walked with his people. But in Exodus, it says that he decided to dwell with his people. And so God dwelt in the tabernacle, as you know, and until Israel's sins caused the glory to depart. Then later God dwelt in the temple that actually got built. But once again Israel sinned, and once again the glory departed. And after all of that, in John chapter 1, verse 14, it lets us know that God's next dwelling place was the literal person of Jesus Christ. Who was taken and then nailed to a cross. Today, through his spirit, God dwells in the church, in us. We are the temple of God. God doesn't dwell in man-made buildings any longer. I mean, we always pray and invite his presence. But literally, when you stop and think about it, his presence is here because you're here. <laughs> he dwells in the hearts of those who have put their trust in Christ. And in the church collectively, as we see here. And this temple will last forever. Why? Because it tells us that he is the foundation and chief cornerstone for it. The church, the one new people group, the body of Christ, has a destiny to grow. Our enemy has opposed this growth throughout the ages, has he not? History has proven that he will stop at nothing to achieve his goal, which, good news, will ultimately fail. <laughs> Anyone who has ever seen a picture produced by what we call an ultrasound has seen one of God's greatest miracles. A little child with hands and feet and with a heart that beats. Today, as you know, there is a literal war that rages around the world and the innocent children in their mother's wombs are the ones who are caught in the crossfire. There are many who desire claim, uh, to solve the problem of pregnancy by claiming that life begins after the fetus is born, but that ultrasound allows us to see for ourselves that life begins way, way before the birth. Throughout the history of the church, the enemy has tried to abort her. He's seen God's ultrasound and fears a church that is a growing body of believers. In spite of his opposition, the church will be triumphant. Jesus reminds us of this when he says, upon this rock, I will build my church. 
and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Someone has said, we're not the sum of our weaknesses and failures. We are the sum of the Father's love for us and the real capacity to become the image of his Son. Christ died to make reconciliation possible, church. You and I must live to make the message of reconciliation personal. And in doing this, fulfilling the great peace mission that Christ came to fulfill. Amen. And so may we live doing so. Father, we come before you this evening. And once again, um, I think we're just so moved in our hearts to just simply start with, thank you, God, for all that you have done. We were lost in darkness. We were without Christ. We were without hope. We were without God. We were without a future. But you came. You brought us together. You reconciled. You set aside the hostility that existed. Not only between Jew and Gentile, but between us and you. And in spite of us, you love us. You saved us. You redeem us. You walk with us and you've got an amazing plan for us. Help us, God, to set ourselves aside and give ourselves entirely and completely to you, realizing that as followers of Christ, we indeed have been bought with a price. We are no longer our own. We belong to you. May we never forget that. And may our lives be examples of it. For we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Wellspring of Life Church in Western Colorado. If you'd like to learn more about our community, please visit wellspringoflifechurch.com. So I will lift up.